The following podcast is presented by Together Washington. Together Washington, we are seeking to build bridges across divides and tell the inspiring stories of those building the common good. If you'd like to support or get involved with Together Washington, go to togetherwashington.com. So glad to have Emily Washines with us. She is the founder of Native Friends. She is enrolled in the Yakima Nation. She's also doing incredible work, building understanding and support uh, for Native Americans that you've seen in films, writing, speaking, exhibits. You're going to be, I think, really inspired, encouraged by our time with Emily. Emily, welcome to the program today. Hello. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I have some uh, new dandelion type coffee that I'm trying out, so I'm feeling extra healthy today. All right. What you said, dandelion coffee? Wait, what? Yes. Wow, tell me about that. I tried that. to come back in exciting. the afternoon. I've, I've reached that age, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you took the time to be with us. Emily, tell us a little bit about uh, Native Friends. What What is Native Friends? Yeah, so I run um, a website that's called Native Friends, and I focus on history and culture, uh, primarily from the Yakima Nation. You know, there's so many different untold stories and pieces of history that I like to really shine a light on um, everything from uh, food sovereignty and resources to the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis that's been happening uh, across the nation really. And, you know, also just a, a diverse uh, collaboration of projects that I just get interested in and decide to go down that rabbit hole. Now g- give us some examples. And now you've, I mean, you've you've studied, uh, you know, so many different things and you've authored and co-authored, um, you know, a lot of different papers around some of the things that you're talking about. Where did you for you in, in starting Native Friends? What was the what was the impetus? Yeah. So I got a grant to study the uh, Yakima War to create a video off of that. And I for those people out there that write abstracts and grants and, and have ideas, you know that somewhere along the line, it kind of shifts or changes, or there's something that just grates against you and you can't set it aside. It just keeps popping up. And for me, I really wanted to tell this story about the Yakima War uh, that happened in 1855 to 1858. Uh, but I kept wondering about the other side. I kept wondering about the, uh, descendants of the military and militia that fought against my ancestors. And I wondered what they had been told, what kind of, I know uh, we have oral histories. I wondered if they also had oral histories that they carried that weren't cited in history books uh, that weren't told. I wanted, I wanted to hear those kind of uh, communications and stories that happened between people, those real honest um, decision points that happen and occur and I just wasn't seeing enough of that in these um, history books. I, and so, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, completing the film, but along those lines, also searching out for descendants, which I ended up finding um, descendants of military and militia. And when I was trying to find a name for my website, I saw a couple of things. Number one, I consider resources kind of our, um, our friends because they're kind of a nod to the native resources. But two, I thought if I'm trying to have them look up what I'm doing, 
this seems like a great name. I'm coming like under a friendly alliance with a white flag. Mm. Emily, were you born in Yakima? Is that is that your home yes. where you were born? Yeah. Yeah. Tell I was born tell, in Yakima City. <laughs> I mean, tell us, tell us about your you know, your formative years growing up and and then if, you know, in some of the studies that you've done as well. Yeah, you know, you um Anybody that has kids, uh, you really get flashbacks. I mean, I personally get flashbacks to, like, when I was their age. And I find myself saying some of the same things that my parents had said when I was their age. And they it's kind of like an average everyday uh, occurrence of our children to come home and talk to us about what they learned in school. And I just have these real, like, uh, I cringe at some of the things that's taught through a specific lens. And then I have to figure out how to broaden that perspective and, and include additional insights about that history. Meaning, you know, when I was coming home and saying what I learned about the Oregon Trail or these different dynamics that had a, a perspective that removed the Native uh, uh, experience, the trauma, uh, the uh, genocide, my parents, my uh, family were very tuned into that and they made sure that we had that additional uh, supplemental learning, I think is the official term for it. And so I, I find myself doing that with my own children. I find myself having and being in conversations with people all the time about what that means to be a native or what these perspectives are that extend from this history book that was written, you know, in the Midwest 20 years ago. Um, and, and I, I, I enjoy those conversations for the most part. I mean, you know, things get kind of dicey and people get pretty settled in. But I think that, you know, when we're smaller and younger, we have this really big curiosity factor and aspect. And I really love to get in that mode of let's be curious about this. Who are you? Who am I? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It, under that kind of guise of curiosity, what are what are a couple things that over the years, you've seen that folks get really curious about that perhaps, you know, that it's kind of a kind of basic history, but um, but are really curious that they're they're getting informed on that perhaps they they never really quite understood. Is there are are there a couple of things that have stood out to you over the years? Uh, well. I, I like the example of, of why we can grow so many different foods in the Yakima Valley. Uh, for those of you that are here um, and don't just go to miners, but maybe go to the uh, the farm stands, and or maybe you're coming to get some salmon from some of our fishers. I mean, we're very rich in resources, not only from our traditional foods, but also, you know, those apples. Like, I lived in Alaska for a little bit. I went to school up there, and the biggest thing I missed uh, along with my family was like the fresh produce that we have in the summer. I was like, mm. there's not produce like that in Alaska at all. <laughs> um, and so when you ask about, you know, what uh, things that I picked up and what I, I really gravitated towards um, with regards to history, it's the fact that we're so rich in resources here, able to have our traditional foods that are on our ceremonial table at Yakima as well as, you know, go and grab 10 different types of apples uh, is because as a result of the Missoula floods, bringing in these rich soil deposits. Uh, and 
in doing so, we also have wetlands, you know, in this area that a lot of people consider a desert, uh, especially when you um, compare it to Seattle and the raininess that can happen over there. But we have this dry area, the shrub step area, and then we have wetlands. Like, how does all of this exist in this area? Um, and it connects to very specific events that happened in our history that our tribal people have um, oral uh, legends about. You've got a you got a great family as well, Emily. And you know, be, what to be a, a mom and to do the the training. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, the instruction. And what what do you see are some of the differences between when when you were your kids' age? And, and now that you're, you know, as you mentioned, doing some of the training and instruction with your kids, what are, what are some of the differences that you've seen between the time when you were that age to now? Well, I'm continually surprised by it, for one. I mean, the level that my children are able to advocate and engage with their teachers and what they're being taught surprises me all the time. Um, and, you know, you have that parental pride where you're like, wow, I, I helped with that. Um, you know, one example was we had a, um, an event, uh, kind of a ceremonial memorial event for the children that were found in Kamloops area in Canada uh, in unmarked graves. And there were some that couldn't make it back home for that ceremony due to the um, restrictions that were in place due to health. And our tribe hosted that for them. You know, Kamloops is that, you know, connected to this area through the Columbia River. Um, tribal people know that. We have specific legends that connect different resources up there to us, specifically the Huckleberry. And I brought my children up. They were still in remote uh, learning. And I had let their teacher know they're going to this uh, event. They will not be in class today. And... When uh, I got back, they asked if she could do a presentation on it. And so my daughter did a PowerPoint, and eventually the principal saw it and then incorporated uh, an entire, like, moment of silence uh, in the, their uh, little fifth-grade graduation ceremony. And, yeah. you know, I think about that moment and being able to be in a rural community, a smaller community, and have people that can recognize something and validate something and it coming from such a little voice. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Historical aspects of missing and murdered Native women on the Yakima res Reservation. We've been reading uh, these stories the last few years. They've just been absolutely uh, horrific. And Emily has been helping us understand what's going on and emily talk to us about your work on this just just really tragic story that that's been going on for years yeah so this is a story a lot of people um that are non-native this has come as a big surprise to them in in our valley uh but this is something that i grew up knowing you know my uh, brothers used to to come behind me and get me in a lock hold and I'd have to like get my way out of it. And it was always kind of understood, like you could at any time be under attack. Like statistically, 
it's showing that you need to know how to physically protect yourself. My mom enrolled us in like self-defense classes at a very young age. I was reading like Anne Rule in middle school. I was learning about modus operandi and like what criminals um, and serial killers look for. And I look back on that now and I think about that and I think, wow, there is a really different way that I grew up compared to people that are non-Native and what they, uh, the perception of, you know, being at risk grew up. And I think once the stories started coming out and the statistics and the, unfortunately, the cases that the families have had to face, um, a lot of people got really emotional about it. I mean, I was at my dental hygienist and she was like crying in her office and and it's just something that once people became aware of it, I feel like in the Acoma Valley and elsewhere, we really saw a lot of people uh, bringing a lot more care and attention to it. Um, it's still ongoing. Um, our first case of a murdered Yakima woman was in 1855. Uh, it started uh, the Yakima War. Our Yakima men uh, basically uh, went and found the these miners that were coming from the west side going up to Calder where they had found gold um, after they had murdered these women and children this woman and children they found them and killed them and because back in the day they had they went they had checkpoints for miners so they knew when they were supposed to show up and when they left and when they didn't show up they were trying to find out what happened um, the military's response to that the U.S. government's response to that was to start a, a three-year war. Um, historians, um, a majority of historians don't uh, capture this part of um, murdered Yakima women. In fact, there's a large erasure or minimalization of what occurred to our Yakima women um, and children that were killed by those miners. They state um, the start of the Yakima war was because uh, Yakima's killed miners. So if you're like me and you wanted to see like why you have these, I mean, I have these questions like why do they erase Yakima women from this historical narrative? Why do 90% of historians publish something different than I do? Um, you know, why does this happen? Why was that? The federal government hasn't even addressed that. I asked, hmm. you know, the FBI and the previous presidential administration on a call, uh, why haven't you ever responded or addressed the fact that your response to our women and children being killed was a war? What are some of the things that when you ask those questions, what, I guess, what are the things that you've learned then over the last couple of years? Well, you know, you look at parallels. I think that in one way, history is a gift in that it gives you insight and it tells you that there are certain things that are going to be erased are minimalized, are going to have a delayed uh, governmental response, to put it, to put it lightly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, over 166 mm-hmm. years is definitely a delayed uh, governmental response, wow. right? I mean. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I, I think it's a mixed bag. I don't think, I don't think that some people that are in bureaucracy or governmental institutions want, are ready to have that conversation. They're still not ready. They haven't been prepared for it. They only learned very small uh, pieces of the history. You know, oh, I got to go on the Oregon Trail and avoid disease and, and think about uh, manifest destiny. I can't think about like these natives that actually have 
uh, strong connections to this land. Wow. It was a couple years ago, Emily, when the Washington State Patrol, I think it was, uh, and, and that was one of the, I think, significant times where I think folks, you know, non-Native folks like myself, you know, began to, when they released that report, uh, documenting this, I mean, it was just, again, this kind of like, what, wow, this is unbelievable. Um, wh- what was your reaction when that, I don't know, do you remember when that, when the Washington State Patrol released that report? What, what was your, what was your thoughts when that came out? Well, I mean, one part of that was that Representative Mossbrecher um, created a bill that asked for this report to be um, written by the Washington State Patrol. And I mean, I try to keep an open mind about who might be willing to help in this process. I think that um, sometimes people can get really locked into certain uh, aspects. Um, You know, Representative Mossbrecher, she's a conservative uh, person that many didn't really uh, connect with a lot of the policies that she had put forward until it was um, addressing MMIW. I mean, the scene at the meetings that led up to that report, I was attending at the Yakima Convention Center, and it was their largest gathering that they had in the entire state. They they went around to different uh, places um, in the state of Washington and had these meetings, and they had to actually like stop the meeting so that they could open up an additional room um, because there were wow. so many people there. Um, wow. So there was definitely a lot that went into this. There's still something that's going into this. There's an ongoing list now of missing uh, people that is released by the Washington State Patrol. They just released uh, an updated uh, list earlier this week. They updated uh, at least every month. And this is really a, a validation of what people have been saying about their loved ones that are missing. It's largely been on the family members to release that information um, and to try to get that information in front of people. And the problem with that is, is people are used to hearing about missing people from police. And when it's just some family member on social media, you get a lot of questions. There's a lot of runaround. There's a lot of dead ends or people that just give incorrect information for whatever reason. Um, so this is really strengthening uh, a response to, you know, finding these uh, missing people in a coordination that we have never seen. I didn't expect to see this in my lifetime. You know, when I was that little girl that was driving along and, you know, we're just going to go get um, my shoes at Payless or whatever. And my mom all of a sudden's like, you need to stay close to us. You could end up in a ditch right there. That's where a woman died. You know, wow. these are the kind of accounts that I heard growing up, um, but I never saw in mainstream. I never saw that in the class. I never saw that talked to, um, talked about uh, in any public setting before. Oh my goodness. Tell us about Savannah's act. And is that, where is that currently at right now? Yeah. So Savannah's act uh, was named for a woman that um, died under horrific circumstances. She actually um, was pregnant and somebody uh, abducted her, uh, lured her and cut her baby out of her. Um, this uh, bill moved forward to add additional uh, layers of protection for Native women 
Um, and in fact, our own state senators uh, really worked on that diligently. Uh, Senator Penny Murray and Senator Maria Cantwell. Um, our, our representative, Dan Newhouse, out of the 4th District, who is a Republican, co-sponsored that in the House, which, again, that shocked a lot of people to see that level of response um, from somebody that, you know, we don't always align with. But on that topic and that issue, he's been really at the forefront. Um, and so Savannah's Act is really trying to, you know, again, improve levels of coordination and addressing this these um, numbers, not only on reservations, but also in urban areas. Um, urban Indian Health Institute wrote a report that addressed that. Uh, when it was initially, the Savannah's Act was initially uh, written, it was very limited. And mm -hmm. this group in Seattle um, said, you need to do more. This has to be more. There's additional numbers. This doesn't go far enough. And the response was like, well, you need to get us numbers. So they had a very limited budget. I think it was like a few hundred dollars. And they FOIA requested a number of different urban cities. You know, Seattle is, you know, on the top, um, one of the top cities for MMIW in the nation based on those uh, statistics and rates. And in order to be more protective, you know, tribes and tribal members are always asked to provide information that we have limited access to. Um, but what I love about this story is they were like, all right, I have, I mean, they say in the report, but it's like, I have these, this couple hundred dollars and I'm going to move forward because anybody that tries to get um, access to information, sometimes there's a charge just due to administrative fees. So they actually had to choose which cities they would get information from based on the amount of money they had available. Wow. Um, and you, you would think, oh, this information should just be readily available. You should just have say fingertips. We live in Google university world right but <laughs> mm -hmm. um so this movement is largely progressed by people that just are tired of it want to have some kind of proactive response from it and want to you know continue to help families get answers that they they have what's the current status of that right now of savannah's act uh so savannah's act passed i believe that one of the applications of it was actually um for one of the last federal uh, applications of that was actually for a case against uh, a Native woman being prosecuted in Washington, um, which I was surprised that that was an application that was allowed to be used. She was a uh, woman that killed her rapist, and the federal government prosecuted her based on uh, her killing him. And they went even above and beyond the uh, sentencing guidelines, so the prosec federal prosecutors, and the judge ended up citing Savannah's act in not going along with the federal government's um, or the prosecutors really out there uh, request for sentencing. And so I, I didn't, I don't think anybody really anticipated that um, level of protection. I mean, we have a lot of unsolved cases. We have a lot of cases that are sitting on federal prosecutors' desks right now where and Native tribal members are a victim. So it has been surprising to see federal prosecutors moving so quickly and swiftly on a case in which there's a Native woman that kills her white rapist. And, but this just goes to show that this is, the judge is aware of this type of law and able to apply that to, you know, within their jurisdiction. Wow. Incredible, powerful 
uh, work you're doing. One of the things, Emily, that uh, you've mentioned that you're working on, uh, I'd love to have you talk about it if you're if you're okay with it in terms of some of the um, the activities with as it revolves around women in the trades. Is that I know this is uh, really passionate uh, for you and something that you're doing some some great work on. Yeah. So women in the trades is uh, a project I'm working on to basically create a Yakima chapter. There's a nonprofit called Washington Women in the Trades. They, they have a dynamic and excellent group of women that uh, form that. And so I've been communicating with them and trying to start this Yakima Valley chapter as a way to support um, more women in the trades. Uh, currently, there are about 3% of uh, women that are in the trades in the state of Washington. I think that's been a pretty a standard percentage for the past decade. And when I think about that, it just seems like we got to do something about this. We got to put some resources towards this. We got to uh, get, you know, the word out there about the type, different types of trades that, you know, women can be in and we have to provide support. First off, when you say the trades, not some, some folks might not totally understand what that, what that means. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So women in the trades includes a, a broad group of uh, women that are in electrical, uh, electricians. They include plumbers. It can even include, um, at our own Yakima Power, we have a woman that climbs the lines, you know, to make sure that electricity is getting to uh, their customers. Uh, and we also have uh, women that are archaeology techs. Uh, archaeology technicians that are responsible for running different machines and collecting data um, in connection to uh, that type of work. How did you get passionate about this and why are you getting involved wanting to get a Yakima chapter going? I was actually, I had learned through um, a YouTube YouTuber that I was following that Canada has a program where they support uh, women going into the trades. And I had always had that in the back of my mind. I primarily follow this YouTuber because um, of they, their workouts. And I just thought it was a kind of a cool way to see how they were progressing through. But along those lines, she would talk about, you know, going into this plumbing uh, program. And I, I had always filed that away. And so when the opportunity came up to uh, somebody that said, hey, we have some additional um, funding support. What project ideas do you have? And... I didn't have much prep time for this, um, and but I, I pitched. This was one of the ideas that I pitched, and I thought they're never going to go for this. This is the most mm. random, <laughs> crazy thing. I'm not. I personally don't work in the trades. I mean, I can work maybe like a steamer, cleaning uh, <laughs> <in> my bathroom, <laughs> but <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm trade uh, material or up to par. Uh, I'm so far removed from this this industry and this type. So to put myself in a position to really rally around it seemed like a really far stretch. But, um, you know, it, it, it's the one they went for, and it's progressing uh, pretty quickly so far. Wow. So what are what does this look like then? What are, what are the next steps? And I guess what are your what are your hopes? I mean, what what do you hope comes from this? Yeah, so there's um, a couple of things. Uh, we are going to gather uh, a 
a bunch of people uh, connected with women in the trades and try to get their ideas and try to have a community conversation about that. And in the upcoming uh, summit we're having uh, with Together Washington, which you're very familiar with as the co-founder um, uh, at Heritage University, and really try to see where are some areas where we might have some partnerships, what types of support can we create for uh, these women and what's referred to as pre-apprentice programs, apprentice programs, who might be willing to uh, create those opportunities for to train these women. Um, and then actually the uh, Washington Women in Trades has a trade fair that's coming up um, on May 6th at the Fisher Pavilion at the Seattle Center. And that's a free event to attend as somebody that might be interested in that field. Um, if there's an electric company out there that's listening right now or something that wants to go and attend that. Uh, there's information on the Washington Women in Trades about how to sign up as an exhibitor. Yeah, that, I mean, that's exciting. Do you think, are you getting, are, are you feeling so excited that you might go out and, and um, learn how to maybe um, do some electrical work or plumb or what, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think I've got you know, one of the things that, it's a good point. We need to have visual examples of what this is and what this means. I mean, one of the people that I talked to in the tech field has never seen another woman doing her job. And so, wow. you know, when you're talking 3%, you know, the, you're probably going to be on site and on different places where you're only seeing um, at most one or two other people. Uh, and so having visuals, having photos or videos of what this work entails, I think that's more my seed, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> creating that. Yeah that um, image of that. I'll, I'll be the one like hooking on the GrowPro to the electrician. I don't know if I'll uh, get right in there. <laughs> I'll turn on the light. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I mean, it, you, you bring up some good points here in terms of what some folks who are listening and, and might be interested, what, what are some resources? What would you encourage them to do? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have a person that's, I'm interested in the trades, I definitely recommend that um, annual trade fair. I think being able to talk and see um, people in the industry face-to-face -face is a really great way to just get information. Um, and that information is available at wawomenintrades.com. And another aspect of this that I thought about that connects to our previous topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women um, and domestic violence is, is having this financial stability. You know, we talked about myself being very young and learning that how to physically protect myself at a very young age, but also creating a financial flexibility for women that might need to move in an area very quickly and what kind of skill sets have they been able to build up and, and that are, are very um, sought after, you mm -hmm. know, if you need to move to a different area. And I, you know, some of my initial uh, thoughts about that was that we want to we want to try to have a proactive response to some of these very traumatic things that are happening in our community and I really feel strongly that a lot of these women are survivors and when you think of these women that are just pounding stuff out and so tough that they climb poles and do all this very physically demanding work it just connected to me um the the survival aspect of Native women, um, and already I am hearing that some 
there are some women that had to shift jobs be, because of a domestic violence situation. And, and because they had that skill set, they were allowed to move to a completely different state because they were connected with a, a program that uh, throughout the Northwest, not just in one specific area, they had that flexibility. And, and I just think that, I don't think that we hear very much about the trade. I don't think women hear very much about the trade. So I would just say, you know, to start there for uh, people that might be interested in going to the fair and then just trying to be a support network for women that uh, are interested in it. Yeah, that's helpful. That's great. And I'm sure that there's some listening that are going to be encouraged to do that without a doubt. As we close our time, Emily, um, again, just so grateful for your time. You know, Yakima, a lot of folks here on the West side, I mean, it, Yakima is kind of a hidden gem, right? Um, what, what, what would you, for those listening here on the West side, uh, what are some things that you would encourage folks um, to, to check out in, in, in the Valley, in the in Yakima County? I mean, there's, there's so many amazing uh, people. There's so much great things to see. What, what would you, uh, what would you encourage folks uh, who are listening uh, as would you, would you encourage encourage them to do a little outing out to uh, to the valley? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about food wise, I mean, you know, going through the farm stands, picking up some salmon from a fisher if you can. Those are going to be like the best. Bring a cooler. <laughs> Make mm-hmm. sure you can uh, have both. I mean, having fresh food, I think, is one of the biggest highlights of being able to be around here. Um, if you're not able to bring that cooler through or you uh, have a very small car, uh, there's our Legends Casino that has amazing food. I had um, pancakes with huckleberry uh, sauce. There's a fancy word for it. I can't quite pronounce it. <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I feel very insecure about my able, uh, ability to pronounce the compote. I don't even compote, compote. <laughs> Compote? Yeah, I think compote, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know how to read it. <laughs> um, you know, and it's a, a really great buffet on weekends. I had no idea that we ran a, a buffet with that long of hours on the weekends, and I, I ate quite a bit of food. Um, we talk about uh, miners as having a burger, but it really, when you go inside, it has this little mini, uh, dis- I call it a mini museum, but it's really a, a big display case with regalia, and there's a lot of historical photos in there. Um, I think that just if you only have a few minutes or you're only stopping through because of sports or something, those are kind of a few easy places uh, to visit and go. Of course, we have uh, the Acclimation Museum as well that uh, you can get additional um, insight on our culture. Oh, uh, where where is that at? That's on uh, Spilei Loop right off of Highway 97 in okay. Hopkins, Washington. Top of this. That's great. Emily, thanks so much for being with us. Emily Washeen, she's a, a scholar, the founder of Native Friends. You should check it out, nativefriends.com, uh, doing incredible work, building understanding and support um, for Native Americans through film, writing, speaking, exhibit. Uh, just tremendous having you on the program today. Thanks for being with us, Emily. Yeah, have a great day. Yeah, you too. 